Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to After Work Drinks With. Every Saturday night, we'll be releasing an interview with an interesting person handpicked by us because they're someone that we, and by extension you, would love to have a drink with. So pour a glass, settle in, and enjoy. This week, we are so excited to be speaking with Jessica Varden. Jess is a British actress whose impressive list of credits includes Hannah, alongside Saoirse Ronan, Far From the Madden Crowd with Carrie Mulligan, and The Lobster with Rachel Wise. But she's best known for her critically acclaimed role as Alyssa in the Netflix mega-hit The End of the Fucking World. Now she's taking on Hollywood with major roles in a slate of new movies, including Pink Skies Ahead and Holler. You may have already heard us ranting and raving about the end of the fucking world on this podcast before, and if you haven't seen it, you really should stop what you're doing, watch every episode, and then come back in two hours to listen to this chat. Um, Jess is an amazing actress, she's a bloody awesome human, and she opens up about anxiety, Hollywood's obsession with youth, classism in the film industry, and just a whole bunch of other really interesting topics. We hope you love the episode as much as we loved creating it. And if so, please rate, review and subscribe and we will see you again on Wednesday. so much for taking the time to talk to us we are stoked and we love you on the end of the fucking world i think it's like grace's favorite show so in the world it was my favorite show from like the last three years it's it was, <laughs> apart it was, from rupaul's drag race apart from rupaul's drag race yeah. oh, I love thank you so much that's so that's so kind and thank you for having me i'm like so excited i haven't really spoken to other females for a really long time <laughs> yeah who are you quarantining with I'm quarantining with my boyfriend, which is great. Um, I was actually supposed to, I was filming something in Vancouver at the start of this. So, you know, like we did all of our goodbyes and I prepared to just be away from everybody for three months and then I've ended up being back here. So it definitely, I really appreciate the time. I mean, if people weren't dying, I would probably be able to appreciate Mm -hmm. it a lot more. But I don't know, like it's been this, I was trying to explain it to somebody the other day because it's so crazy to be in a relationship quarantining with somebody because if you're really lucky like us, it feels like a gift 
genuinely because you're learning so many things about each other and about yourself in a relationship and just about yourself personally that you would never really have imagined that you were going to learn. Like you would never have been like, oh, I hope that we go through a quarantine together. Like you just wouldn't. And I don't know, like I always thought that we had really good communication with each other anyway, like more so than any other relationship that I've been in. Actually, they all kind of, after quarantine, they just feel like so, they were so like surface level now after going through this. But you have to talk to each other about everything because you have no chance to gain perspective. Like every single thing that happens has the potential to end your relationship if you just don't talk about it. Grace has been um, having a few quarantine squabbles when we've been on Zoom Yeah, there's been a few broken bowls in the (laughs) sink. I mean, it it has to, you know, it has to happen. It's definitely not. If it was perfect all the time, I'd be like, where's the lie? You know, like, I'm just super paranoid about that. Totally. Okay, shall we jump into things? So in the end of the fucking world, you play Alyssa, who is quite an unruly teenager. What were you like as a teenager and in high school? Yeah, I get asked this question a lot. And I mean, I definitely was like her. That was obviously the thing that attracted me to her. And when I actually first played her, I was still a teenager because I was 19. And, you know, I definitely was like her, but I was such a late bloomer. I was not really a teenager until I was 15, 16. I didn't really misbehave. I had no like streak of independence or rebellion until then. I looked like I was nine until I was 16. It's kind of borderline touch and go a lot nowadays as well. But um, I was really insecure. I remember that. I really... I was not like how I see teenagers nowadays. Like, no, I mean, I don't know if they're actually like that in real life, but just from what I observe online, they seem so much more put together and they can, I don't know, I do think that they live in a world that is, there's a lot more things to deal with, but I think Alex is kind of a bit more accepting of what teenagers go through. Um, Yeah, and I just had like zero understanding of myself whatsoever which I think Alyssa has especially in the first series it was all just constantly trying to keep going to get away from learning something about herself or trusting somebody in James um and I don't think I quite had that when I was a teenager because I just wanted to please people all that stuff came to me really in my 20s so you started working in film and tv at a very early age as an extra Um, Do you think that means that you kind of had a less glamorous idea about what the movie industry was like because you were just in it from such a young age? No, because I still have, I feel like I still glamorize it for myself now. Um, The show that I was an extra on was called My Parents Are Aliens, which was this huge CITV show. Um, And I just thought that it was incredible. just being on the set of a TV show that you watch yourself at home. And I used to find even going to the canteen at the studios incredible. I was like, whoa, I can't believe that I'm in a canteen. (laughs) This is so cool. Because it was nothing like school. You know, there's just so many different options. I was like, this is, I'm a movie star now. Um, And no, I feel like 
I don't know. I totally, I'm such a geek. I love movies. I love being an actress. I love other actors. And I love old Hollywood. And I'm always like romanticizing my job. And I still, I mean, it's definitely not glamorous, but I tell myself that it is just because I still want to live in that dream that I wanted. Um, I don't really, I guess it's just because I'm a geek and I just love my job. Not cool. And then how, how quickly did you realize that it was something that you could make a career out of? Was it always what you wanted to be when you grew up? Um, I was like a really busy child and my parents were amazing. So I did lots of other things. I did horse riding and I do a lot of athletics. I used to run a lot competitively. So, you know, between the three things, I was like, I'm going to do, I'm either going to be, I wanted to be a jockey. I still don't think that they have like female jockeys, but, or I wanted to be an athlete. I don't really know. I did. I definitely didn't know that I wanted to do it for the rest of my life until I was 17 and I made a movie with Stephen Frears called Tamara Drew and um, it had Luke Evans in it and Tamsin Grieg and Gemma Arterton and working with Stephen Frears on that movie was when I knew that I wanted to do it for the rest of my life. It was a really special experience and yeah, it changed my life. So you've worked uh, already with some really formidable actresses, especially British actresses. So Olivia yeah. Coleman, Kerry Mulligan, Saoirse Ronan. Um, what are some of the kind of early lessons that you learned either from them directly or from seeing them at work? I mean, I remember when I worked with Saoirse, we were both teenagers and she was just so composed and she you know, she just really kept herself to herself. She had a lot of patience on set. And, you know, she was a movie star. She was definitely a leading lady back then. And she had a really great relationship with her parents. And that had a lasting, you know, a lasting impression on me because I realized that it's so important to keep people around you that are going to keep you grounded. Also, Kerry Mulligan was a really fantastic influence. I really loved working with her. Um, she was so hands-on with everything, like every part of the movie. She wasn't just an actress in it. She was constantly, I'd, I'd never seen that before. I was 20 when I worked with her and I'd never seen an actress taking responsibility for so many things and make, if she didn't like a scene, she, if she didn't agree with a line in the scene, she would send emails and she would show them to me and be like, this is what I want the scene to be like. And I was like, oh, cool. Like, we don't just have to go up and say that. I just had no idea. I was like, wow, I thought we were just, like, paid to kind of show up and do it. And she's like, no, like, we can, you know, if you don't agree with something, you have to say that's, like, what being in a movie is. Like, you can have input. And, yeah, I think about her all the time. Whenever I'm on a job, I always try and think about, think back to Carrie because I've just never seen anybody like that on set. That's so cool. When you play a character who, but like in a show that becomes hugely successful, it can be hard for people to separate you from that yeah. character. Have you found that either in your real life where people expect you to like be like Alyssa or do you kind of find yourself becoming more like her sometimes? Well, I think at first I've definitely, it's something that I've had to do work on, honestly. 
I mean, I do therapy every week in quarantine. I've done it twice a week because it feels like a good use of time. And, you know, just to give like the real answer, I have done a lot of work on it in therapy because it was something that I began to realize was, it was affecting me because, you know, of course, like, I mean, for me, the thing was, I was like, oh no, but I still want to have privacy. And I don't want everybody to think that they know everything about me because I don't know. I mean, you never really know how you're going to feel about it until I was really grateful for it. Everybody wants to like, everybody wants to do a role that people don't forget. But when you get it, you don't really know how you're going to respond to it. And I found that I was finding it kind of hard and it kind of gave me an identity crisis because I definitely am like her, but there's so many other things about me as well. And I was like, do people want to know that side of me? Do people want to see me play different roles? Do people think I'm boring when I'm talking to them and I'm not being like that? And, you know, it was just like a huge distraction because there's just so many more things to life. So I, I did therapy for it, like many other things, but that was one of the things. And um, I don't know, like it's an, it's an ongoing process, but at the end of the day, it's something that I am extremely grateful for. So I'm doing the work so that I don't resent it and, you know, end up being some asshole that's like constantly talking shit about a role that changed their life. It's like no one wants to see people doing I remember when Daniel Radcliffe talked shit about Harry Potter and I literally was going to send a gunman to his house. Right, like no one wants it. You don't want to see <laughs> no. you don't see privileged people talking shit about their life. Like you just don't. Oh, yeah. So the end of the fucking world feels like a study in trauma and Grace and I are both reading a book called The Body Keeps the Score at the moment, which is all about trauma. Um, did you and Alex or the cast and the crew talk about it at all during preparations for filming? Yeah, I feel like on the second series, a lot, because there was a lot of trauma. Because um, obviously the first series, no, I feel like, I mean, we did obviously, but the first series was these people not, under, they were coming to realise that they had all this shit. The second series is the aftermath of that. Um, yeah, we did a lot about it. And Alex especially really did so much work and so much physical work because that's what Alex does like he's just like he prepares for everything it's amazing um and I yeah I was really actually conscious in I think it's episode seven when she's talking about nearly being sexually abused by the Clive character um I tried to watch a lot of different ways that a scene like that had been portrayed in TV. Um, and I tried to read a lot of interviews about that. Um, because, and I realized at the end of it, and this was something that we spoke about the whole way through, with something like that and with our show and the audience that it had, we didn't want to influence people into a particular type of emotion because obviously surviving something like that is incredibly personal and you don't want to influence or shame anybody in how they feel about it. So I wanted a lot of that side of Alyssa's storyline to actually be quite neutral 
so that it was just giving people a chance to relate or think about whatever they wanted to. I didn't really want it to be this like really super emotional, angry, crying thing because I didn't want to alienate somebody that didn't feel like that because at the end of the day, everybody handles trauma so differently and that's the side that we've always tried to stay with everything on the end of the fucking world where you just give people it and see what people make of it for themselves. We found it really refreshing that you talked openly about anxiety. It's something that me and Izzy have both been in therapy for as well and talked a lot about on the podcast. Um, Can you talk a bit about deciding to talk about it on a public platform and just about how I imagine that struggle must really flare up when your job is to be in the public eye? Well, when I, being honest, the reason that I first started talking about it was probably actually fueled by anxiety. And just like, for me, one of the things that we talk about in my therapy of my therapist is actually boundaries and not having any idea what I keep for myself and what I give to people. And I don't know why it's an ongoing process. So I think originally I was talking about it because I didn't know what else to do. Um, And then as I went on, obviously I could see a lot of the responses that I was getting from it were, were just so nice. So I carried on and, you know, I could appreciate that a lot of the messages that people were sending to me were really genuine and they appreciated seeing somebody that they see on a television show talking about it. Um, And I think I'll continue to talk about it because everybody has anxiety. Like it is at one point in your life, you'll have, you probably will go through something like that. And the times when like you don't know what's going on, it's like truly terrifying you know when before I really knew what was going on and as you said I'd go and do stuff with my job and I would have to be doing things that everybody would find nerve-wracking I just didn't really know what it was I truly was like I'm having a heart attack am I just going crazy and it's not nice I mean at times like I really didn't want to leave the house like I was truly afraid of leaving the house which like no one should want to do that like that's just like really sad and you're just surviving which is not great but also it's really positive because it means that you can survive things but you want to get to a point where you're not doing that um and I just realized so many people have it so I encourage everybody to talk about it because it's just normal Yeah, so you just mentioned um, boundaries as being something that you talk to your therapist about. Yeah. Um, And it's something the same with mine that she says is really important for me. What are some other kind of coping mechanisms that have helped you keep it in check? I really, I mean, I've really, I've really enjoyed doing my therapy in quarantine. Like I've, it's been amazing because you can really go there because you don't have to do anything after it. Um, Yeah. One of the things that I really cracked during this time is figuring out what emotion your anxiety masquerades as. You know, like for some people, it could, for me, 
like mine just gives me like some kind of like rage, makes me angry, and it makes me feel completely misunderstood. And that's what my anxiety manifests itself as. So once I realize that, you know, then you can learn to not trust that. And then you go to your second thought or your third thought and be like, oh, wait, like, is this real? Am I actually, am I actually angry right now? Or is this something that I know gives me anxiety? And then you can get this foot in the door before you start being in headspace that's just going to ruin the rest of your day. And, you know, understand that this is not real. Like, this is just not a real feeling let's just chill and like process. I can imagine that working through a lot of this stuff would be very useful as well as an actress. So are there ways that you've kind of pulled on things you've learned psychologically about yourself in therapy and use those in some of the upcoming roles that you have? Well, I've learned during this time that I actually feel like, and this is normal, like I feel like a lot of actors do this and when I realized it, I was like, oh no, I'm like, am I going to beat myself up about this? No. I feel like I was usually using a lot of different scenes before to like process anxiety. Like if I had to cry in a scene, I would just like give myself an anxiety attack, which is like fine. But you know, it's probably not, there's other things for me to explore. But after I've been doing this work, you know, it just gives you such a deeper understanding of yourself. I feel like I respect myself a lot more. I expect my experiences in life a lot more. And I feel really excited to get back to work and see if it does have an impact on how I relate to a character or relate to a scene after I'm not trying to like enter some headspace anymore, actually be able to think of intelligent work that I've done on myself and understand my emotions more but I haven't done it yet I'm waiting for Quasi to be over (laughs) yeah um so the thing that happens with a massive Netflix show like this is that you suddenly become really really famous how did that feel kind of happening in real time for you because you just would have been I don't know did you suddenly just wake up one day with a million new Instagram followers and then how did that kind of change afterwards yeah fully I remember I don't know, it was crazy because, like, our show was tiny. It was a tiny show. Um, We were so supported by Channel 4 and Clark and and Netflix who made the show, but no one thought that people were going to love it like this. You know, we weren't – we didn't do, like, a huge press tour. There wasn't billboards everywhere. We weren't based on something that was already super famous. Um, So it fully did come out of nowhere. And – I remember on the first the first evening after it had come out, I was with my friend. We were eating Chinese food in Soho somewhere in London. And we were just refreshing my follow account and it was going up like in 10,000. <laughs> That's such a thing we would do. That's what we do with like two or three followers. <laughs> yeah. We're like, oh. It, it was like, it was so, it was really, really fun. And the friend that I was with is a director and he's older and he just couldn't believe it because he's like out of the loop of social media really. Sorry, there's a plane going over. I'll just wait for it to go. Where are they going? I know, who's going going anywhere? Ground that plane. (laughs) It was a plane as well, it wasn't a helicopter. 
Bye. That's so weird. Um, <laughs> Bye, guys. Lucky you. Have a good time. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it was really fun. It was kind of, I mean, it also it was kind of stressful because I just suddenly was like, what am I supposed to do with all these people? It was like I'd just been given like a million goldfish. It was like, do I have to like feed them? <laughs> How do I talk to them? Is there an instruction manual? I don't know, like, what do they want from me? But um, I really like my following online. I really like the people that follow me genuinely. Sometimes I don't, but, you know, whatever. Um, I really enjoy it. I love it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Same. So you've said before uh, that people often think that you're younger than you are. And I can imagine in Hollywood that would be quite useful because they're obsessed with youth. Mm -hmm. But then on the flip side, I guess that there is possibly the element that people maybe take you less seriously because they think you're younger than you are. Is that something you've grappled with at all? Yeah, a lot. Not so much in work. Not so much with work. In real life, like lining up to buy something in a supermarket, I'm always like, I am students too as well. Or I'm, you know, I, I always feel like I'm kind of pushed out. But then I also don't really know how much of that is. I feel like a lot of women feel like that. So I feel like if it wasn't because I looked young, it would be something else. I just, I feel like women, a lot of women that I speak to always feel in some way like they're not being taken seriously so I try not to feel sorry for myself about it because if it wasn't this, it would be something else. And we're all working on it collectively, positively, and we're all surging forward to not have that feeling anymore. Yeah, so you live in LA now and you yeah. work in Hollywood, obviously. Do you feel like there's actually been a dramatic shift in terms of how young women are treated or do you think that's been over-exaggerated with the Time's Up and Me Too movements? I mean, it's never going to be something that you fix overnight because it was a problem for such a long time. Um, for me, the biggest thing that I feel like I have gained from this is things like this, you know, situations where we're actually talking about it as women together, even socially. Everybody talks about it now. And it's other women talking to other women. So that's a, a massive win for me, I think, because we're the people that should be talking about it. And, you know, has stuff changed on set? Like, does it change in the work that we read? Yeah, it's definitely feels like a much more even playing field. But 
it's not going to happen in a year or in two years. But now we have more opportunities to talk about this stuff. So we're in a better place than we were before. I even read that, you know, as close as last year, you had a male co-star telling you you had no right to talk to a director about a scene you were in. Yeah. Yeah. That actor is notoriously difficult to work with. He's extremely talented, but he is, a lot of people have had their problems with him. And yeah, I just can't really take it anymore. He kept calling me Miss Barden, which I just found like so really great for me. I right. So yeah. it was like we're both frowning <laughs> yeah. for the audio. Yeah. It was like three o'clock in the morning. I was like, nah, I was just like, I can't. And the main reason that I did it was because there was a lot of women on that set, and I felt really embarrassed that the women around me were hearing me be spoken to like that. So I was the only actress on that job. And, you know, I feel like I had to say something. I didn't want people to think that that's how I could be spoken to, really. So good. That's amazing. I read an interview with you where you said that you had been told that you couldn't get certain parts in England because of your accents right. and this is something that as an Australian and New Zealand uh, who've recently moved to London is quite foreign to us because it just isn't a thing um so can you kind of explain that whole system and and especially in terms of the British film industry where there's like a lot of period dramas right. and like kind of a, a specific type of output what that whole situation is I mean this was something that was said to me about five or six years ago and I feel like casting directors in particular are a lot more up on this now and I just don't think people can really say things like that anymore but it is still something that I feel so you know, I have a working class accent um, and you're right to point out period dramas which is what a lot of England delivers and of course when you're making a period drama and you're thinking of one you think of the quintessential British woman that is very well spoken is usually very softly spoken and you know there's lots of like breathlessness and trying to find the right words to say which isn't really a character that you probably would think to cast me in um And for a while, those were the roles that everybody was being given and those were the shows that were constantly made. I do think it's changed, which is great. And I think that people are so much more open-minded now and so much more conscious about the people that they're casting. But, you know, I don't think it's really a feeling that will ever leave me of being told it's going to be harder for you to lead a show because you have an accent and you sitting there yeah, I'm an actress. Like, I'm, I can act and do an act. Yes, my yeah, job. Like, what to am I supposed that? to do about it? <laughs> right. And just being judged for something, somebody making an assumption about the type of person that you are and therefore the type of character that you can portray without asking you about it or having a conversation with you about it felt, it made me feel disappointed at the lack of imagination in an industry that really only has imagination um but I, I do feel like it's changed and I got to play Alyssa in the end of the fucking world of my own accent and 
for all the years of feeling like I was never going to be able to do something like that to then get that job at the end of all that time, I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't change my experience because it meant that I could really appreciate being able to do something that was 100% authentic to me. It maybe would have gone over my head if not. Mm. It's also like that thing people talk about where it's like when people say, oh, you can't make jokes about anything anymore. And it's like, well, if you can only write racist, homophobic jokes, maybe you're not that funny. It's like if you think the only good story you can tell is with a lead character who fucking speaks a certain way or comes from a certain background, like maybe you're not a very good writer. Yeah. (laughs) I think that's what people are realising. Definitely. And, you know, England is one of those places that it's complicated because it goes a lot deeper. All those types of things and all those types of people that say things like that or write jokes or say that somebody with an accent is never going to be in a TV show. It goes a lot deeper than this industry. It's something that England has tried to get over for years because they have huge problems with you know, how they view different classes. And it's so old-fashioned and it's just so boring. Um, But, you know, it's like a bigger issue in the country. So... Yeah, it's something we're really learning now. We're really trying to... Because we just moved there and we're learning all about this, yeah, and all of these class systems that don't exist over here and even just the history of racism and, yeah, there's a lot. It, It really is. And also English people have this way... I don't know, they have like a poker face and they don't really have a lot of emotions. So it's so, it's just so weird to, I don't know, they're not always, I mean, I love England, but I'm an American now because there's people are a lot freer and they're a lot more open to change and open to different types of people. But England is really struggles with that. And I don't know, it's super boring. But you know, I may, I still love it. It's where I'm from and my family's from there, but I, it's just so dull. They need to change. Mm, totally agree. So just in a massive pivot, we're going to talk about fashion now briefly for a second because we are obsessed with your style. Um, is that something you've always been interested in or is it something that you've embraced as part of your job? I mean, I work with two stylists one of them's called Sydney Lopez. She's a stylist that I work with in America. And Holly, wait, she got married. Her last name is Holly Algetti. She got married, so I can't really remember her last name. Um, so they obviously, like any single time that you see me like looking good, it's because I'm wearing clothes that they put me in. Um, but yeah, I love clothes. Obviously, like I love shopping. I'm obsessed with all those things. Um, I feel, I mean, a lot of it, honestly, I follow a lot of Instagrams that, you know, post all the pictures of what people are wearing. And day to day, I definitely am wearing, like, the white Nike socks, like, high top sneakers. It's not actually that cool. Like, I do dress like everybody else. And, like, it's kind of basic. But anytime I'm wearing something that is so nice, it's because they put me in it. But I love doing photo shoots. Um, I love the clothes. I get to wear at shoots so much. But every day today, I just like to be cozy. Same. I was very excited to read that you're a Judy Garland fangirl because she's my favorite. Oh, ever. I don't know why, really. And <laughs> yes, I've the um, 
original A Star Is Born is like my favorite movie of all time. It's the best. Um, it's the best. So, and you have a dog called Tim. Yeah, I do. Oh my god! And she's the same breed as Toto from. Wizard yeah, and she really, she yeah. really does look like, her. and she's really like Judy Garland because she's very hot and cold, and she's also kind of obsessed mm-hmm. with men. She chases men which is you know like a very like francis Applegum thing to do <laughs> yes so on a more serious note like what is it about judy garland that is so inspirational to you as an actress i just think she is amazing you know she obviously has that incredible voice but the thing that makes it so incredible you know if you watch her perform as herself when she's on her show the judy garland show or you know, on YouTube, you can go and watch her sing. She is just like, she acts the words. I can't explain it. I mean, a lot of them do that, like Barbra Streisand does it. Like all of those guys that are like legends do this and they're acting when they're singing. And her face and the way that she feels a word when she's singing, it's just so pure. And she also was so unapologetically herself. And she lived in this time that people didn't really appreciate her. And I don't feel like that. But she, you know, she did. Like, nobody really understood that she was this incredible thing that needed to be honoured. And she just wasn't. And I don't really know why. So I definitely have that, like, Judy girl, Judy Garland, like, fangirl thing where you're like, she was so hard done by. And, like, I really love that. She didn't win the Oscar that year. Grace Kelly That is just, yeah. like, truly shameful. And she just given birth like to go through all that like just don't even come to the delivery room if she didn't win but i I just i love her i love her so much she just was so pure so herself always in the moment and she's tried so hard and i don't know like she never tried to be cool or anything and you know in 200 years people will still know who judy garland is 100% I think that's the thing sorry Izzy this is the last thing we will say on the topic (laughs) because I can just see you falling asleep but I think there is something about being like really earnest and like really trying every time and not being afraid that that's kind of a bit lame I think it is what makes her so attractive because I think that's what everyone grapples with that you you care but you are scared to look like you care because it's not cool to look like you care but of course for any of us to be doing what we're doing we I agree she that that's her and also when she stole her costumes from Valley of the Dolls and then just shamelessly wore them and nothing else and nothing else by the way for the next two years of her life sadly you know just being just stealing them so that people can see that she obviously stole them and just wearing them everywhere is so iconic to me. Iconic, yeah. Oh, there's a drone. What the oh, hell? Oh, it's gone away. I don't know. It's disappeared. Well, that's invasive. Okay. Probably. We will wrap this up, but we um, the last question we ask everyone on this segment, which is called After Work Drinks With, because we would obviously love to be having a real-life drink with you. Me too. What is your favourite bar and your drink of choice? Okay, so my favorite bar is 
I have to say a London bar because like it's London and that's its thing is actually this place called my place. I have to, I'm going to say two because there's two parts of the evening. So you go to my place in Soho. It's on Berwick street. It's owned by this family. They're so cute. They give you there. I'd have Aperol spritz and smoked salmon and Philadelphia tortilla wraps to line oh my, my stomach, get the even going. And then um, we go to this place called Trisha's which is on Thrift Street, I think, in Soho. And it's a, a nightclub the size of somebody's bedroom. And it plays, it, it just plays all like Olivia Newton-John, you know, super camp. And the bar is just completely makeshift. It's not really a bar, it's a shelf. And I would have... I'd, honestly, I'd probably have vodka sodas there because I find that that drink, you can just keep drinking it and it gives you, you know, like a nice night. And if I was going to have a shot, I would have tequila. I always have tequila for a shot. I love that. If I have a tequila shot, it's like I'm not good company. Oh, yeah. I'm living with people that keep the guy I'm living with at the moment for isolation just loves tequila shots and so he'll just whip them out and sometimes if I'm feel sometimes if I just can't say no I end up having a tequila shot about 2 p.m. and it ruins my entire day. I know I'm like I'm because it makes you want it tequila gives me energy. One time when I think I was like 24 or 25 me and my friend Antonia when we were in London if we were you know we'd go out for dinner on a Wednesday night trying to be low key and then we'd be like, oh, should we just like go dancing? And we would just have tequila and it didn't give us hangovers. If you just have tequila and nothing else, we would have like three shots of tequila, dance for three hours and be home by 11, 30, 12. And the next day was fine. Feels that's great. a really good tip. <laughs> yeah, that's our item. Okay, amazing. We yeah, actually have to go to these restaurants up. in Soho because we moved to London and we don't know and we moved to London and the only people we know are people from like Australia. And so we have not, we, remember when we walked around Soho for like four hours just trying to figure out where to go? There's this really yeah. amazing whiskey bar. Um, so you know where Crosstown Donuts is in Soho? Do you know what? <laughs> like you do, you yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. You just ask somebody yeah. where Crosstown Donuts is. Okay. It's kind of near the Ivy. And there's this red door and it's a whiskey bar and it's downstairs. And it's like an underground bar and that bar is cool as well. But London okay. takes a while. London, I lived there 10 years and I only really figured it out in the last three to four years. Yeah. The only place we've been properly in Soho is a margarita bar that looks like a sex shop outside. Oh, yeah. And we got absolutely something, something bodega. Like, I can't oh, believe we got home. The Bodega Negro <laughs> or something? Called? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Bodega Negro. Yeah, yeah. I know where that is. And that, did you go to like the underground one? Yeah, you went yeah. to the second one. Yeah. So one time I went there with my then boyfriend and his mum and a man came in <laughs> asking if this was really like, a, he didn't speak very good English and he really honestly thought that it was strip club. And he, oh. he fully <laughs> like how much? He's like, I don't want a ceviche salmon. <laughs> yeah. I want. He was like, where are the girls? And he fully got like a really heavy laptop out and was Googling, like trying to translate, like just like a full, oh not God. like a sleek MacBook. This was a heavy 
I don't know, heavy Microsoft. Like a dog Microsoft. It was crazy. It, it was oh good. And then somebody directed him to where the strip club is, obviously. And we were like, Godspeed, my friend. Like, have a great <laughs> That bar is great. Yeah. I don't know if they'll let us back in. Okay. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. The thanks for asking yes. me. This was so fun. I love you guys. This was really fun. We love you. You're so bloody talented. And thank you. We're very excited to see where you go next. You're amazing. So thank you so much. Thank you, Jess. Bye. See ya. Bye. Bye. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.